afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Porter here on 970 WDAY. Your call-in numbers this afternoon, as they always are, 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. You can tweet me, too, at Rob Port. Nateel, how are you? Doing pretty well today. You ready for the weekend? Yes, I am. I am definitely ready for the weekend. I think most of Fargo is ready for the weekend, and that might just have who, something to do with the marathon. Who, who on a Friday afternoon is sitting around thinking, boy, I, I wish there's a couple more work days this week. It'd be really great if it was Wednesday today. Nobody. Nobody thinks that. <laughs> nobody, nobody thinks that. Or if they are thinking that, I don't know. I don't know what to say about those sorts of people. Uh, one guy I know likes to work for the weekend, David Chapman, our guest. Mr. Chapman, how are you? <laughs> Good. Thanks, Rob. Say, uh, you have a, um, going back to 2014, and, and even before 2014, shared parenting has been an issue in the state of North Dakota for a while. Um, it's been a part of multiple legislative sessions. There have been multiple ballot measures, most recently Measure 6 in 2014. Uh, and a consistent opponent to these efforts has been the North Dakota Bar Association. Um, that uh, There's been other litigation going on. But recently, your your client, Mr. Chapman, who is a, a a proponent of shared parenting, was trying to get some open records from the Bar Association and has now filed a lawsuit against the Bar Association. Tell us what's going on. Uh, well, I think it's, uh, first of all, important to say that, uh, you know, we're not going to try and uh, litigate the case in uh, a public forum in the media. We're going to leave that up to, uh, uh, sure. to the courts uh, to make the determinations in terms of findings of fact. But it's also important to note here that this really is a public records case, and there really isn't anything at this point beyond that uh, that my client is alleging. Uh, it is just an attempt to uh, secure the public records that are uh, important to him in terms of uh, what has gone on in terms of the recent defeat of the shared parenting bill in the North Dakota legislature. Right. So so your, your client, uh, who is Terry Brennan, uh, who works, uh, I guess, as co-founder of a, an organization that promotes shared parenting. He is basically, he was looking for some records pertaining to the Bar Association's activism on that issue, and he wasn't able to get them. What, I mean, what's what's the grounds for the complaint? Can you just lay out some of the facts of the case for us? Um, yes, the uh, public records are considered to be uh, something of uh, great importance to the citizens of North Dakota and as they to should any be. person. Uh under both the state constitution and under legislative enactment here in North Dakota. One of the most important things there is that uh, in public records cases, time is an issue. And in this case, with House Bill 1392 being before the state legislature, time was of the essence. And the issue of unreasonable delay is central to uh, the allegations that my client is making uh, here. And, of course, unreasonable delay depends on uh, the circumstances of each individual case. And as the complaint says, he made clear on several occasions that uh, because this bill was now before the legislature, time was of the essence, and he needed these quickly, and uh, he still hasn't gotten full disclosure. When I do a lot of work with with open records, I'm a pr- pretty frequent customer of the attorney general's office on on even complaints when I feel that the law has been violated. 
the, the statute is not – I mean, there's there's no hard and set rule in the statute. I mean, basically, I, I think the attorney general's guidance is that it should be done quickly. I mean, but there's no – I mean, obviously, that's going to vary from request to request. Sometimes an open records request is very large. It takes a long time. Sometimes it's very short, uh, and it's very easy to fulfill and can happen within minutes or, or hours. What I mean, what, what specifically do you feel, I mean, led, led to, to delays that, I, I guess, crossed into necessitating a lawsuit to, to fix? Uh, well, the as the complaint states, uh, with requests being made, uh, they were pretty much uh, what my client perceived to be uh, excuses uh, as to turning over records. Uh, there were excuses regarding the voluminous nature of the requests, and then there was uh, also uh, excuses made as to, uh, well, paragraph 33 of our complaint where it talks about uh, uh, the response would be received when I have time. And in due course, uh, that uh, my client saw that as, as directly being not related to the volume of records necessarily, but much more to the hey, when I want to do it, I'm going to do it. Well, there, I also saw in there because I, I read the complaint and I wrote about it at sayanythingblog.com yesterday, and anybody who wants to read that document can go there and read it for themselves. But uh, there was also a point at which. Mr. Weiler, Tony Weiler, who is the executive director of the, the State Bar Association, who, by the way, I contacted for comment. He declined to comment at this time, uh, both for my post, uh, for my post, I guess, at the time. Anyway, um, I, I, I guess at one point, Mr. Weiler was asking Mr. Brennan or telling him that he wouldn't turn over the records until he identified who he was or who he was with. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes, that's one of the allegations in the complaint is that uh, there were a couple of occasions when he was asked to identify himself or who he was with, and there is a North Dakota Attorney General's opinion on that very issue that says that that really isn't relevant. It's not part of the statute. And what I'm looking at here is a statute, uh, the plain meaning of a statute, sticking within the four corners of that statute, and there's nothing in there that says that there has to be an identification of the person or where, who they're with. My client is individually uh, pursuing this, uh, not associated necessarily officially with any kind of group. He independently and on his own was uh, pursuing this. And, well, and it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it should be irrelevant. The, the public it, it records be, are public. Yeah. If you're exactly. a member of the public, then you have access to public records. It doesn't matter if you're from Florida or Beach, North Dakota, if you're a member of a Republican Party or the Democratic Party or a shared parenting exactly. group or the Bar Association, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, the the records right. are public. Um, so that's that's interesting. Uh, I mean, what, what sort of a timeline are we seeing on this? I mean, I, I know that the, uh, the Bar Association is still engaged in other litigation regarding to their use of attorney fees to fund opposition to measure six which i know is an unrelated matter to your case but what what's the timeline on this this has been filed now correct it was filed yesterday yes it was filed yesterday and from the time of service uh, there is 21 days in which the uh, state has to answer this or the state bar association has to answer this and then from there then we're into discovery and court proceedings and the court making its independent findings of fact at that point all right. Well, it's it's certainly interesting. Mr. Chapman, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thanks, Rob.
the uh, shared parenting thing is really, in a lot of ways, turned into a headache, I think, for the Bar Association. I mean, this is now the second lawsuit, although this one, I guess, is pertaining kind of specifically to a open records issue, but it's an open records issue related to the shared parenting issue, which I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the Bar Association regulates attorneys in North Dakota. If you want to be practice the law in North Dakota, you have to pay them dues. They regulate you. You know, they can remove your license through a disciplinary proceeding. Uh, but they also engage in political activism, and they actually use the dues that attorneys are obligated to pay to pay for some of that political activism. I, I kind of feel like maybe the political aspects need to be put off into their own private group that the attorneys who want to participate in can participate in that, and the Bar Association shouldn't be involved in politics. I guess that's my two cents. What do you think? 701-293-9000, We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. Last segment talked with uh, Fargo attorney David Chapman. He's uh, filed a lawsuit against the Bar Association on behalf of his client, Terry Brennan, who is a shared parenting proponent. Uh, really, that lawsuit's over open records, which I don't know their complaint. I, I contacted the Bar Association for comment. They have no comment at this time. Uh, the complaint, I, I don't know. The, what, what the complaint sets forward kind of doesn't look like the Bar Association did such a great job honoring an open records request, but that's what the judicial process is for. I guess we'll see how that unwinds. But shared parenting has been, I, I think I think the North Dakota Bar Association's participation in shared parenting advocacy, participation in, in the politics of it, has been ill-advised for the group. Um, if you want to practice law in North Dakota, you have to be a member of the Bar Association. They are the regulatory body for the legal industry in the state. But they're also engaged in, in politics, politics that not all of their membership agree with. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think... If you've got an organization that is going to be sanctioned by the state to apply regulations, that organization, I think, should be politically neutral. I don't think that's too much to ask. And the North Dakota Bar Association has not been. Listener uh, sends a message in. There is an easy legislative fix. Uh, North Dakota does not have to be a mandatory bar. Minnesota is not. Stated differently, to practice law in Minnesota, you don't have to be in in the Minnesota, in the Bar Association. I, yeah, I mean, something like that. I have no problem with attorneys having a political point of view. I mean, they're welcome to it the same as anybody else. I just don't think they should be able to use the Bar Association or a, a small number of them or a, or a, a faction, I guess, of, of the attorneys be able to use the Bar Association as a as an instrument for political advocacy. If, if you want to do that sort of thing, form your own group, your lawyers. I'm pretty sure you could figure out how to do it, and you could fund it with your own money, and then you could engage in all the political activity you want. That's fine. That's democracy. But don't use the regulatory body to do it. It's inappropriate. And, and like I said, I mean, there's been multiple lawsuits. Uh, the, the North Dakota Bar Association was forced actually to, to do like prorated um, reimbursements or, or I, I guess refunds of, of dues paid by attorneys who objected to the shared parenting advocacy for instance so 
Yeah, I mean, something's got to change there. Something's got to give. And it's, I mean, really, that's almost a separate question from where you're at on shared parenting one way or the other. The Bar Association shouldn't be involved in politics if it's going to be the regulatory arm. Now, if the Bar Association is going to be like a private entity and membership in it is voluntary, well, then fine. They can do all the politics they want. But if it's mandatory, I mean, if we're going to mandate it in state law, if that's what it's going to take, if they're going to be like the, the regulatory instrument of the state, they shouldn't be involved in politics. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Natil, did you hear about this yearbook thing over in, uh, oh, geez, now I'm forgetting. Was it Fergus Falls? Is that where it was? I have no idea. I printed the article out. Now I can't find it. What happened? Oh, it's Brainerd. Uh, it's the Brainerd Dispatch. Excuse me. Brainerd. Um... All right, one page of the yearbook. This is, uh, I think, the uh, Brainerd High School. It says, uh, I quote, one page of the yearbook asked students for their feelings about President Donald Trump. One of the four commenters, a sophomore, had harsh words for the president. I would like to behead him, the student said. I do not like him. <clears throat> I would like to behead him. That's probably inappropriate to put into your um How the hell did that make it book? in the yearbook? Yeah. Do they not have a yearbook advisor? They're nobody... supposed to be. They're supposed to be an adult in charge of those things. Maybe like a student, like an adult in the room, like, hey, maybe maybe that quote's not good. Maybe and we also, find a different quote. And maybe we also contact the school counselor and get that kid maybe some, maybe just have a conversation with that kid. I, I don't I mean, listen, it's, to me, it, I, I, don't, I, I don't like making too big of a deal out of crap like this because, honestly, it sounds to me like maybe some kid made up a joke, right? I mean, that sounds like a teen a joke a teenager would make. It's it's not funny. It's crude. Um, it's really not something that you should put in a yearbook. I'm sure this kid probably 20 years later is going to regret having said something like that. But still, how does that make it in the yearbook? <laughs> uh, and, and what a sign of the times, too. Although, you know what is interesting, though, is I, I posted this on Facebook, and a lot of the people, the, the response was, well, why, you know, why are they even asking that question in the Facebook? You know, like, that's inappropriate to even, you know, have politics. In the, and I, I disagree with that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, the president is a part of our nation's history, love him or hate him. And the yearbook is sort of about capturing a snapshot of that moment in history that these students uh, were in school. So having, you know, I, I, I think maybe some, including, I guess, maybe some political viewpoints or common, you know, if done appropriately, I don't see anything wrong with that. We're too afraid. I don't like this knee-jerk reaction that, that politics, we've got to learn how to talk about politics with one another better. I agree with that. But this knee-jerk response that talking about politics is somehow inherently rude, I don't agree. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back. Rob Lindbergh, we're going to talk about oil in North Dakota, where it's heading. I'm hearing the term boomlet. Robert Ford here on 970 WDAY. My next guest, his name's Rob Lindbergh. He's from a group called Bach and Backers. And uh, Rob, Rob, describe your group for us a little bit. And welcome to the program, by the way. Thanks, uh, Rob. Bach and Backers is a coalition of people in North Dakota and and others who are involved with Bach and who support 
energy development and advocate for policy that let us do it well and, and then also try to deliver a message about some of the better perceptions about, uh, in the Bakken. Um, you know, in, in the booming years, we've, we really saw a disconnect between how people define problems out there uh, who live there and work there versus the outside world. And, and uh, there was a big kind of drama outside and, and inside it was very much about infrastructure and, and very tactile type, type issues. So we did a lot then um, and continue to push a lot on, on business-friendly policies. Well, you know, I, I think the question in everybody's mind right now is what's, what's next? Because we obviously we had the boom and the boom is, is over now. Um, we just came through a bruising legislative session where the budget was impacted in a big, big way by – oil prices not just oil prices egg prices as well but oil prices were were a very big factor we're now reading headlines about a new boomlet give us an update i mean what's what's going on what's what's next well i think what we're seeing is it really become an industry and that means that we're no longer in the boom it's no longer brand new to the state um even if prices went up to 90 dollars a barrel today we wouldn't see that kind of flurry of activity that we saw before. We probably wouldn't see as many rigs because uh, a lot of the leases are held by production now. Um, uh, obviously, if we had 90, we'd still have a whole lot of rigs go out there. But we're, we're seeing things just kind of mature a little bit. And uh, I, I point a lot to a statistic that showed in 2014 for the first time since the boom really took off or the Bakken really took off. We saw production jobs and these are guys that go out to the well every day or, or service that well from an office somewhere. We saw them, those jobs exceed the jobs that were related to drilling and completing new wells. And as time goes on, those permanent production type jobs are going to be the vast majority of jobs, even probably up to about 90% and then greater as, as, drilling tapers off in 30 years or so. So that's really where we're headed. That's a stable workforce. It's not crew camps. It's guys that, you know, drive the pickup from their house in the morning and, and go out and visit their wells and, and make sure everything's working fine and come home at night and, and their kids are in school and that sort of thing. So we're seeing things transition into what I'd call an industry. And, you know, we went through the session and, of course, the state tax revenues were down a lot, but I think it's really important for us to remember, too, that the measure of an industry isn't based on what they pay in tax. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, 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 I mean, I think a lot of people try to use tax revenues as, as a proxy for that, measuring it. I mean, because it does, particularly sales taxes, right? I mean, I don't really mind when sales taxes go up, sales tax revenues go up, because it means we're, people are engaging in a lot of commerce. I don't really mind when income tax revenues are going up because it means people are earning more income, right? Those are those are generally good things, but you're right. I, I understand the point that you're making. Um, you know, but I, I, I think, though, the context is what has a lot of people thinking about tax revenues because, obviously, again, we went through a pretty bruising legislative session. It was, it was tough. Lawmakers had to make some tough choices, and I think people are wondering, have we found – have we found the bottom? I mean, is this is I, I, I think I think less so I don't think people are really want or, or are rooting for another quote unquote boom. I, I, I think what they want to know is have we found stability? 
Yeah, and I almost call it normalization or, or a healthy marketplace. And we had 213 rigs that was fairly unsustainable in the long term. Just yeah. Based on what we have for population and what was out there for housing and roads and things like that. You know, we're in the 50s today, possibly in the 80s by the end of next year for rigs. That's something that the infrastructure in, in the housing and the retail services can absorb now. And I, I think that we're normalized. And that's, that's really the word I, I like to use. Yeah, no, I think that's a good word for it, getting back to normal, getting back to something that, that's that's sustainable. Because, I, I mean, it seemed like the whole state kind of went a little mad. You know, we had uh, the, the way things were going. I, I think you saw businesses out in western North Dakota that were being established based on this this thinking that, the boom was going to be the new normal. I remember there were some there was some club out there, like some exclusive club uh, th- that was going to cater to millionaires or something like that, and they ended up folding. They created it in Williston, North Dakota, and and to me that was boom time thinking, right? I mean that that was that was people thinking that you know it was it was going to be the boom time forever. But booms are are, are defined by up and down, and you know we've we've come through our down, but. I, I think what your message is, is is where we're at now, what what may be the new normal going forward is something that's that's much more sustainable. What's contributing to this? Because I'm I'm looking out at it and I'm seeing I'm seeing multiple factors. I am seeing uh it's the the frackers are getting better. You know, they're they're able to drive down their costs. They they, they know they know the area, they know the formation, they're getting better at, at the techniques and technology all the time. And also the availability of, of better transport, um, Dakota Access Pipeline, I think probably being the most noteworthy uh, or maybe perhaps the most infamous <laughs> example of that. Uh, and then also our ability to ship oil overseas. I mean, I've, we're hearing that Bakken oil is now going into foreign markets. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And really, what's, there's two things driving. The costs overall in the industry are going down. Uh, Hess has probably been the – the best at driving down their well costs, and there's some reasons for that. They don't put as much sand in, in their wells because that's their business strategy, and others spend more money on uh, millions more for well on sand and some other things. But Hess has gone from about $12 million down to $4.6 million, I, th- I think is the exact number, uh, per well that it costs them to drill. On the shipping side, Dakota Access is going to reduce the per cost or per barrel cost by – Three to eight dollars a barrel. So if you call it six, it's about 110 million dollars more per year that the state earns in tax revenue. So that's pretty incredible there. And then you know that's that leaves four dollars and fifty cents or so that uh, still goes to the um, to the producer to to offset the lower prices and things like that. And on the other side, though, we've seen. Every year, the productivity of the wells increased, too, and I think that's not mentioned a lot. We, we're now averaging about 500 barrels per day for initial production per well, and, and that's up from kind of the 300 mark or so just two or three years ago. So you had two-thirds output to a well, and that changes the economics of it pretty well, dramatically. Give us, I mean, for, for people who don't follow this stuff, I mean, give us why, why is the production going up? I mean, why, why is that such a surprise? Why is that flying under the radar? Uh, two reasons. One, they're drilling core acreage right now, so it's just we're tapping better thickets, so to speak. But 
On the other side, we're, we're learning more about this formation. We, we didn't know how to drill the Bakken 12 years ago. And so as we've been doing it more and more, we, we learn how to have everybody's special ingredients and, and to what goes down in the well for sand or ceramic profits and how much pressure to put down there. And uh, there's stages. So when, when we talk about hydraulic fracturing, what that is, is it's, uh, it's frack water being pushed down by very, very big pumps. And then they create hairline fractures in the, in the rock. And the Bakken is really like your driveway. It, it almost looks like the same color. It's actually less permeable than your driveway as well. So what we're trying to do when we're fracking is just create structures of hairline cracks that extend out, and they'll maybe go 300, 350 feet um, out from the wellbore. And now we do it in stages. So when, it, when we started the Bakken in 2005, it was just one big stage. So you pump all your water down, and for a two-mile lateral, you've got all that pressure built up. And what happens when you do that is, the weakest point on that two miles is where the biggest cracks are going to be, and, and you, you don't target um, efficiently yeah. throughout, the, throughout the whole stage. And so now we've gone from one two-mile frack to 60 very short fracks, and um, oftentimes it's 30, but as many as 60. And so that's one of the ways that we've gotten better. Uh, whether we use sand or propent, um, it's a very similar substance, but that changes things. And now uh, propents are having special polymers that are in, you know, this is a grain of sand and it, it has little holes in it. And now some companies are filling those little holes in the, in the grains of propent with different uh, polymers that affect how the well performs over, over time. And um, that's actually not being implemented a ton right now. It's in a very early stage. So we're going well, to continue to learn more. It's that's, that's fascinating. I, 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 I think some people, you know, when they think of, of oil drilling, they don't understand that it's a – it really is a science. I mean, it's – or, or, or an art, if, if you will. I, I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, you just – you figure out where the oil is, and then you punch some straws down, and you suck it out. But there's a lot that goes into it, and they're getting better at it all the time. And that is having, you know, impacts across, you know, whether you want to measure it by tax revenue, economic impacts, whatever – uh, we're getting good at it. We're getting very good at it, and and you know it's 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 kind of interesting because OPEC I think thought they were going to flood the the global markets with oil and drive prices down and and put American frackers out of business, and it it just it didn't happen. Rob did it. No, and and what's really fascinating is the different techniques and strategies that each company has because I think a lot of times it's just as much as we think you put the straw down into the ground and you suck oil out. We, we think of the industry as just almost one body that does everything the same. And each producer has their own little strategies. I talked a little bit about how much right. sand that they're putting down. Some are only doing 4 million pounds of sand per well. Some are doing as much as 8 million pounds of sand per well. And it changes the cost and the economics pretty substantially, but it also changes how the well performs. And on a higher level from that, HES, which is doing the lower sand um, per well, their plan is to have more wells rather than higher cost per well. They, it, compared to the other companies, Hess will have more wells because of their business strategy. Well, that's, that's fascinating. It's really fun we to could, see that. We could, do a, we could probably do a whole show on, on just the innovation of all this stuff happening. But 
Um, I think I think maybe the message for North Dakotans is this is stabilizing. This is becoming normal. We may have found, uh, you know, after the boom, and and we've had a little bit of a come down from the boom, but maybe maybe this is the normal. Although with the oil industry, nothing's ever one hundred percent certain. Rob, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Rob Lindbergh from Bakken Backers. You can find them on uh, Facebook or Google them, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to wrap this uh, this segment up, and we'll be right back to wrap the whole show up. Jay Thomas Show, of course, coming up next. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. On the Jay Thomas Show, North Dakota Superintendent Kirsten Baszler is going to be on uh, talking about President Trump's uh, budget and how that might impact North Dakota schools. So certainly stay tuned uh, for that. Uh, and we've had a, a pretty fun uh, show today, I think. I hope you're enjoying your Friday. Um, you know, we, um, we've had a lot of stuff about recalls lately. Natil and uh, obviously we had the one here in uh, we had the one in Fargo with uh, Commissioner City Commissioner Dave Pepcorn where a group of people didn't like that he was asking uh, uh, the the recall that almost was that almost was they didn't get enough signatures well there was another recall over in Bismarck uh, of the, the the Bismarck mayor uh, there was a number of, of factors including one people thought that he was maybe being a little bit too hospitable to the uh, pipeline protesters who were in that community last year and earlier this year, um, you know, he that recall also failed. They thought they had it. They actually submitted signatures, unlike the uh, the Pepcorn recall. But a lot of those those signatures were dismissed. I have a I have a post on the blog though. It, it's sort of interesting because the city of Bismarck invalidated almost 200 of their signatures by saying that the circulator was not qualified to circulate the petitions, and their argument is. Because you have to sign an you have to sign an affidavit when you submit um, petition signatures. You have to sign an affidavit saying, you know, basically, as far as I know, uh, all these these are all valid signatures and of, of people who are allowed to sign the petition. Uh, but the signature, you know, in it, you you have to attest that you are a uh, that 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 you are basically you're you're a resident uh, that you are a a qualified elector, uh, which basically in North Dakota means that, that you're a resident. Bismarck is arguing that it's not just being a qualified elector of the state of North Dakota. You have to be a qualified elector of the city of Bismarck. But I'm not sure the law actually says that. And so I'm I'm wondering, I've been kind of talking with some of the, the petitioners, I'm wondering if they're not going to push that one into court. Um, and I, I think they've got a good challenge. Um, it doesn't say in the law that, it does say if you want to sign the petition, you know, the signatures have to be of the jurisdiction. So you have to be a Bismarck resident. You have to be somebody who can actually vote for mayor in order to sign a, a recall petition for the mayor. That makes sense. That's in the law. I don't know that the law says, although the city of Bismarck saying it does, when I read the law, I'm not seeing where it says that you have to be a citizen of Bismarck to circulate the petition. Um, so I don't, I mean, if you have somebody from Mandan who just wants to volunteer and collect signatures, What's so wrong about that? So I don't, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I, I think I think the legislature is going to have to to clear that up at some point. Um, also, the other problem is that this goes to court because if those two hundred signatures that were invalidated, if they get put back on, the recall's on. 
Um, but the problem is, is the may- the mayor of Bismarck's up for re-election in June of next year. So I don't know. I mean, by the time they go to court and they get all the stuff ironed out, and then maybe they hold the recall election anyway, we're going to be what having a recall election six months from the time of the regular election. Does that make any sense at all? I, I, I think we need to look at some of our laws governing recalls. I like recalls. I think citizens should be able to recall their elected leaders. I, I think that is a very powerful tool. I'm, I'm not uh, sort of infamously, I'm not a fan of initiated measures, but recalls I like. I think they're good. But we might want to look at the timeline because even like with Commissioner Pepcorn, with Mayor Seminary over in Bismarck, we're getting pretty close into where we're going to be holding re- expensive recall elections, pretty close to regular elections. That timeline might need some work. Thanks for listening. Again, uh, Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Superintendent Kirsten Basler on with him. You can catch me here Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on WDAY or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again. Hey,